When I was casting about for a subject for this lecture, a close friend of mine who knows the critical eye of you seminarians warned me, Bob, make sure you talk about something you know something about. <laughs> so I figured I'll talk about perfection. <laughs> but I'm not really an expert on that. So retreating a bit, I thought, I'll talk about how difficult it is to be perfect. But I'm not really your expert on that either. Of course, I realize we all face a lot of temptations that deflect us from the good, and some of these are very hard for us to resist. But I can't say I really know how hard. As C.S. Lewis explains in Mere Christianity, only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. The person who gives in to temptation after five minutes does not know what it would have been like an hour later. Now, I don't give in to temptation that fast, but I've not always held out the whole hour. So if I did try to talk about how difficult perfection is, some of you who are much stronger resistors of temptation than I am would probably be amused at how easy I think it is. So I dropped back a bit more and thought, I'll talk about why we are afraid of perfection and despair of becoming perfect. On that topic, I have considerable expertise. When I was growing up as a preacher's kid in Kentucky, I was afraid of how perfect the church members expected me to be and I despaired of living up to their expectations. Of course, I realized many of their expectations were way off base, but some were pretty much on target, and they seemed impossibly high. Especially when I considered serving the church as my father and grandfathers had done as a pastor. Then this really worried me. Of course, I would remember that in some important ways, Jesus expected me to be better than those church members wanted. He commanded, you therefore must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And it gave me the willies. So I settled on this topic for today, some of our problems with perfection. I'm very grateful for the invitation to deliver this third biennial T.B. Maston lecture in Christian ethics here at George W. Truett Theological Seminary. I'm honored by all of your presence, seminary students, uh, some of my philosophy students I see, colleagues here at Baylor, friends from the community, and especially the members of the Maston Foundation, and some perhaps of his former students or people who knew him at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary where he taught until 1963. Dr. Maston, by the way, was very interested in the topic we're exploring today. He focused on the problems Christians have with perfection in the final pages of his textbook in Ethics entitled Christianity and World Issues in 1957. And when his seminary launched a scholarly journal the following year, he reworked that material on perfection 
into an essay for the inaugural issue, which he titled Constructive Christian Tension. In this essay, he brackets all of those problems that we have with perfection due to our sinful resistance to God's calling. For these inevitably lead to what he calls self-defeating and destructive behaviors. Instead, he focuses on tensions or problems he calls constructive because when we experience and respond to them sincerely, they will draw us toward God's expectations for us and for the world. Such constructive tensions, he notes, result from an honest attempt to live consistently the Christian life, and so they are felt most keenly by spiritually mature and sensitive individuals. In this lecture, I want to honor Dr. Maston's spirit and build on his insight that wrestling with some of our problems regarding perfection can provide encouragement and direction to faithful discipleship and not be an occasion for just wallowing in despair about our disordered world, ineffectual congregations, and sinful selves. So let's begin with Jesus' command in the Sermon on the Mount, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, Matthew 5, 8. The word therefore suggests that this injunction is pointing us to what's essential in Jesus' astonishing teachings that come just before it concerning anger, adultery, divorce, taking oaths, retaliation for offenses, and love for enemies. Teachings which he says fulfill the law and the prophets. And perhaps the word is meant to suggest we are to hear the injunction as crowning as the crowning theme of the entire sermon. Either way, we should understand the scope of perfection to be very broad and to encompass most, if not all, of the attitudes and behaviors that characterize those who live in God's kingdom. To grow into this perfection, then, will require much more than loving our enemies, though for most of us that would be plenty, or getting marriage and truth-telling and generosity to the poor right. It will require getting all of our discipleship right. The goal of perfection appears so very daunting then, in part because Jesus' expectation for holiness and moral transformation is totalizing. No wonder we have some problems with the command to be perfect. Let's consider three of those problems that we might think of as constructive for our discipleship. How are we going to do it? What are we going to do? And how will we do it together? First of all, how are we going to do it? Well, the good news is we're not expected to become perfect by our own efforts, either individually or collectively, but only through God's prevenient gift. As T.B. Maston writes, when the gospel message issues a challenge to perfection, it is deeply embedded in a morality of grace. Karl Vaught puts it this way in his commentary on the sermon. Quote, Jesus demands divine perfection from his followers, 
However, Jesus never suggests that divine perfection can be achieved by our own action, but only by allowing our lives to be transformed by the kind of perfection that God has displayed already. The perfection to which the sermon points, then, is to be understood as an expression of divine perfection rather than as a human achievement. In other words, we must allow ourselves to be transformed by turning our attention to a certain display of divine perfection, which Vaught later identifies as God reaching down to his enemies through the self-emptying life and death of Jesus in order to make it possible for them to become his friends. Furthermore, if we allow ourselves to be transformed in this way, the result will be our increasing conformity to that very divine display of love, such that we become a living expression of divine perfection. Let's consider how Vaught's notion of our being transformed by our noticing and attending to God's perfection could be a conduit of the divine grace we so desperately need to motivate and enable our discipleship. Another great scholar here at Baylor, Charles Talbert, explains that ancient Mediterranean peoples had two different but complementary ways of talking about divine grace. We're most familiar with the model of indwelling. We heard it in Charles Wesley's text just a moment ago. We find it in Paul's instruction to work out your own salvation in fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, enabling you to will and to work for his good pleasure, Philippians 2, 12, and 13. And Paul's promise that Christ in you is the hope of glory, Colossians 1, 27. Such passages suggest that God somehow inhabits us and influences our motivational structures in a way that enables us to love as God loves. Jesus himself sometimes uses this language of indwelling with his disciples. I'm thinking, for example, in the Gospel of John, where he says at the Last Supper, abide in me as I abide in you. But Jesus doesn't talk this way in the sermon. But there's another common way of talking about God's grace, the language of transformation by vision. Ancient Mediterranean peoples generally believed that simply being in the presence of a deity caused a transformation of the self into the likeness of the God. For instance, the Greek philosopher Pythagoras believed our souls experience a change when we enter a temple and behold the images of the gods face to face. Paul speaks this way too. He appeals to the example of Moses' divine radiance after being in the very presence of God to teach that, quote, we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another probably heard that alluded to in Wesley's hymn. This amazing transformation, Paul says, comes from the Lord who is spirit, 2 Corinthians 
This idea of our being transformed by a vision of God pervades the sermon, Talbert notes. The Gospel of Matthew sets the stage by identifying Jesus as Emmanuel, God with us, and showing how the renovation process has already been at work in the freshly minted disciples. When Jesus opens the sermon, think about that, when he begins the sermon by calling them salt of the earth and light of the world, all that has happened to these fishermen in the gospel story so far is that Jesus has called them and they have followed him. They have been transformed by seeing Jesus and being in his presence. And now the sermon is set to work this same transformation in us. It does it not through commands, but through a series of verbal portraits of the good in the Beatitudes, of the divine will in the so-called antitheses, and of the divine graciousness and trustworthiness in those layered images of God in chapter 6. Talbert concludes, quote, The sayings of Jesus in the sermon function as verbal icons, windows into God's world, that enable readers to see into God's unconditioned will. This vision of the divine transforms our character by enabling us to see reality differently. Once we see reality differently, our dispositions, intentions, and motivations also change. Our character is thereby being transformed. End quote. Notice how that command perfection that Jesus gives us itself contains what Talbert is calling a verbal icon. It says we are to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. This last phrase points us toward God's own perfection when, which, when we begin to see it more clearly, will draw us into its orb. The word pictures that Jesus paints are not the only icons in the sermon. Jesus, Jesus himself is an icon through whom we see the Father. And he clearly expects the disciples, as they grow toward perfection, to become icons for one another and for others as well. When he says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I'll return in a moment to the notion that we're supposed to become icons for one another and to another problem of perfection that this idea presents. But for now, let me summarize the good news. It will not be by our own efforts, but through the reception of divine grace that we become perfect. A divine grace which is communicated to us in two ways. Through the indwelling spirit and by a vision of God regularly mediated to us through Jesus the word, the word pictures of scripture, and the companionship of other disciples who are being drawn toward perfection. 
If one problem of perfection involves how we're going to do it, another problem, and you may have thought I was going to start with this problem, another problem is what are we going to do? What's the content of Jesus' injunction? What does he expect us to become and to do? Because if this is way too high and difficult for folks like us, even the prospect of enabling grace may not calm our innervating fear or overcome our despair. The Greek word translated perfect in Jesus' command is teleos, which means mature or complete, in the sense of a person or a thing being all that it is supposed to be. The word seems to borrow its content from the nature of the thing it describes. For example, a perfect pencil and a perfect person would both be teleos, but not in the same way. The first would be all that a pencil should be, and the other all that a human being should be. Now, I think it's important to see that in this injunction, Jesus is not commanding us to be perfect, to be as perfect as a human being can be. Aquinas makes this point. Why? Well, because human perfection would require us to know all that a human could know, Love as fully as a human could love, attend to the details in the full measure a human could attend to them, and so on. Someday, as the redeemed in Christ, we will be raised to this level of perfection, Aquinas says, in our homeland. When in the very presence of God, we fully know as we have been fully known. But for now, in this lifetime, when we are on the way, as Aquinas says, there are too many obstacles to such a wonderfully complete realization of our humanity. Of course, we should be cooperating with God's grace to remove some of these obstacles, like the sinful desires Aquinas calls contrary inclinations of mind. But other obstacles to human perfection are the unavoidable distractions that we must learn to accept such as the necessary attention to our friendships, marriages, community building, and other activities to which God has called us, as well as basic activities required for bodily life, like eating and sleeping. Indeed, Aquinas judges it would be a kind of perfection for now if we could humbly embrace these limitations when they are required by our embodied state or our service to God's kingdom. Now notice the pattern in this line of argument. I want to extend it just a bit. The perfection to which Jesus calls us is pegged in two ways to our human nature. It is related both to the ultimate goal of our lives and to the contingent processes by which we attain that goal. While God fully intends that one day we will be perfected in our humanness, this perfection is meant to unfold gradually through our embracing certain limitations and our responding faithfully to certain circumstances, contingencies in our lives. This implies that our perfection is pegged not only to the goal of humanness, which we all have in common, 
but also to enfolding capacities and gifts which are more excellent in some people than in others. Regarding the latter, Jesus' proverb would seem to apply. To whom much has been given, much will be required. And our perfection is tied to what we might call our divinely approved locations on the way, our calling to marriage or to singleness, our commitment to particular service in the kingdom, and so on. We are not called to be all that we could be as human beings, but all that we could be as persons on our particular journeys. As our natural human capacities develop, as our sinful dispositions are redeemed, as we are drawn to know and embrace ever more fully God's purposes for our lives, Jesus calls us to a perfection that is a maturity or completeness that is appropriate for that moment in our journey. This implies that his injunction to be perfect involves an ever-moving target. Just as we are led to achieve one level, the goal ratchets up to the next level. But it also means that the target is always in reach for us. That with God's grace, we can move toward it from just where we are. And finally, it suggests that since we are at differing points on our journey toward home, the content of the injunction varies a bit for each of us. I think this is good news. While Jesus is always enjoining us to do more than we have done and become better persons than we are, responding to his call is not at all impossible for us, for his injunction targets each of us just where we are situated in life and just how we stand in the welcoming presence of God's grace. Finally then, we are supposed to become perfect together with others in the body of Christ, which is the church. Now unfortunately, the Gospels can only refer to the church obliquely, even though it is the divine institution they serve and help fashion because the church lies in the future beyond the Jesus narrative they're telling. Still, many interpreters detect within the Sermon on the Mount some hints of the church's communion. One of these hints is that Jesus' instructions have a plural subject. I remember learning this injunction in King James English. Can anybody quote it with me? Be ye perfect. Ye is plural, not be thou, singular perfect. When modern English translations use the word you for the subject, they obscure the plural form of Jesus' command. But folks in the American South still possess the linguistic tools to say things clearly. And so Clarence Jordan's version from the Cotton Patch has it. Now you, you all must be mature as your spiritual father is mature. That Matthew intends for us to hear Jesus' command to perfection as interdependent members of Christ's body 
becomes even more obvious later in the gospel when a plan for mutual correction is outlined to repair any members who depart from the path to perfection. The church, the ecclesia, finally steps out of the, from behind the curtain, so to speak, to settle the issue and offer divine restoration in Matthew 18, 17. Now, there's a number of difficulties related to becoming perfect together in the body of Christ. Won't ask for a show of hands, but you can think of a bunch. But following Maston's lead, let's examine a problem that afflicts even the best functioning congregations. A problem that is felt most keenly by spiritually mature members because it results from their congregation's honest attempt to live the Christian life. I call it the problem of differing moral antennae. And I've already outlined the source of the problem in what I've said above. When we explored the how problem, we noted that becoming perfect must be thoroughly wrapped in God's grace, which is often mediated to us through the companionship of other disciples who are being drawn toward perfection. Then in response to the what problem, we admitted a kind of relativity in the journey toward perfection. The ultimate goal remains the same for everyone, but the immediate content of Jesus' command to a person varies with her capacities, gifts, and divinely approved location in life. Now, this suggests that as faithful disciples follow Jesus' particular guidance to them, they may sharpen their moral sensitivities and powers of discernment in differing ways. Each will make progress toward perfection, but not on exactly the same path as the others. Therefore, they may develop differing moral antennae. One may become very sensitive to contemporary issues of environmental degradation. Another to violence toward prenatal life. A third to sexual purity, and so on. They may also differ in their powers of discernment on these and other matters as well. Now let's suppose, for the sake of argument, that none of their differences trace to their culpable failures of attention, lassitude in education, or any other sin of omission or commission. They're just finite creatures who are differently situated and thus are being led by God on differing paths toward perfection. Now, do you see the problem these faithful disciples may face when they try to encourage and support one another? Often, despite their very best efforts, they will not know exactly what to do. Indeed, given their differing moral antennae, they may even get in one another's way and interfere with one another's projects in a world that is broken in so many places and in such complex ways. For example, on an important issue like how to respond to same-sex unions, some will be very concerned but others won't see the point. Some will know what to think, but others will be confused or worse, deceived. And those with some insight may be more or less able to speak and to act, 
and therefore be counting on others' support. To the extent that disciples differ in their insight and commitment and in their wisdom to applying these to a significant moral issue, rallying others to one stance may be very frustrating and lead one to despair of any faithful, united witness. This problem of differing moral antennae is one of the problems or tensions that Maston says is, quote, a natural and necessary part of creative living, such that just experiencing it is usually an indication of progress or growth, end quote. To live with this problem creatively, we would do well to heed the advice of John Cassian in the fifth century. When Cassian was a young man, he traveled among the desert Christians in Egypt. And in later years, when he was pressed to sum up his experience with them so that others could imitate their lives, he wrote this wonderful book, The Institutes, that became the charter document for Christian communities in the West. We have more copies of the Institutes, by the way, than any other book than the Bible from the Middle Ages. And that's because in all of these Christian communities, which were either founded by Benedict of Nursia or descended from those communities, um, they followed the rule of Benedict that said every evening you should read passages from the Bible, and passages from Cassian. In this book, Cassian reproduces some of the conferences or personal meetings that he had with the wisest ones in Egypt. But he begins his account by noting that none, none of these famous Christians were perfect. They all had blind spots, character flaws, and weaknesses. And yet he reports that you could learn from each of them if, like a most prudent bee, you move from one to the other, drawing on the flowering of virtue that each possessed, but not expecting any one of them to have all the virtues. Afterwards, he says, you could make some serious spiritual honey by combining the combined nectars in the vessel of your heart. It's so very ironic, isn't it? Many of those men and women who retreated to the desert expected that they would escape from the distractions of the Roman Empire and live by themselves in order to focus on becoming perfect as Jesus had commanded. But what they discovered was that they desperately needed one another. They learned, Cassian writes, quote, Christ has not yet been made all in all, to cite the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 28. But we can nonetheless find him partly in all. Christ is now divided among each of the holy ones, member by member. But when all are assembled together in the unity of faith and virtue, he appears as the perfect man, completing the fullness of his body in the joining together 
and in the characteristics of the individual members. Cassian is alluding, of course, to that wonderful promise in Ephesians that Christ has blessed each one of us with gifts, quote, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to the perfect man, the andra telion, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, Ephesians 4, 12, and 13. From this Pauline text, Cassian is drawing two important insights. The first is about our knowledge. Namely, in this life, we can only glimpse the full and perfect humanity of Jesus through his body, which is the church. As imperfect as the church was in Cassian's day, and as imperfect as it remains today, the church is where we must look to see the humanity to which we are called. We will not see this humanity fully realized in any of its individual members, but it will emerge as a kind of gestalt when all are assembled together in the unity of faith and virtue. And then Cassian's second insight relates to our very being. Namely, God is intending to join us together in this life. As individuals, each of us can only be limited by our particular moral antennae. Aware of some, but blind to other important moral concerns. But as we are joined together, our differing moral antennae become strengths, allowing us together to express the fullness of Christ's body, which is to be a community of discernment, a body of judgment, and a communal witness to the gospel. In an important essay, Ethics as Formation, Dietrich Bonhoeffer agrees that the moral life is a process of our growing toward the perfect humanity of Christ. However, drawing on this passage from Ephesians and other Pauline writings, Bonhoeffer concludes this formation does not involve an individual person trying to imitate Christ. but our being drawn together into the very concrete body of Christ, which is the church. He puts it this way, we can speak of formation in the Christian ethical reflection only by focusing on the form of Jesus Christ, the Gestalt Jesu Christi. But Bonhoeffer, like Cassian many centuries before him, sees the form, the Gestalt, of Christ emerge not when he looks at the individual believers, but at their unity in the church. It's like one of those immense portraits by the American artist Chuck Close. When you stand too near the painting, all you can see are like little boxes and circles of color. But when you step back, you begin to see an image of a person's face emerge from the collage of colorful parts. Therefore, Bonhoeffer says, quote, the starting point of Christian ethics is the body of Christ, the form of Christ in the form of the church, the formation of the church 
according to the form of Christ, end quote. In other words, Jesus' call to perfection is a call to our formation into his church. So here's the good news we discover when we wrestle with the problem of differing moral antennae. Our variations in insight, concern, and practical wisdom are actually signs that the perfect human being, Jesus Christ, can only draw us into his fullness through his very body, the church. And he will do this if we will humbly and patiently yield ourselves to him. This morning, I've reviewed three problems that we have with perfection in the Christian life. How are we going to do it? What are we supposed to do? And how will we do it together? These are examples of what T.B. Maston calls constructive tensions or problems. We're not supposed to solve them but to meditate on them and allow them to draw us toward God's expectations for us and for the world. The three problems are most salient in, but they're not really restricted to Jesus' call to perfection in the Sermon on the Mount. We could look at other New Testament passages. But in Jesus' call in the sermon, we begin to see how we should respond to those problems. To address the how problem, we are to embrace God's enabling grace imparted to us through the indwelling presence of God's spirit and through the visions of our Heavenly Father's perfection that we glimpse in Jesus, in the verbal icons of scripture, and in one another as we are drawn toward it. To address the what problem, we recall how perfection is pegged to our human nature in two ways to the goal or telos we share, and to the contingencies of our individual journeys to God. And to address the problem of how we will do this together, we humbly remember that God intends for us to journey toward him through the body of Jesus Christ, which is the church. I said it gave me the willies. Jesus says to his disciples, you, you all, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. No one will ever say anything more daunting to us. No one will ever say anything more winsome to us. May we truly hear what our Lord commands, welcome his enabling grace, and be drawn closer to one another on the journey of discipleship he requires.